Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Y'all good evening. Grab your copy of God's Word. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 5. We're walking through the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians here, a series we're called we're calling uh, Together We Stand. That's the beauty of what God has given us in each other, right? He has put us together for a purpose, uh, for our protection, for our good, for our joy, you know? For our joy, all right? So, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. Think with me for a moment. What are some foods that children love? Chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Mac and cheese, French fries, pizza. Oh my goodness, we live on pizza. Marshmallows, yeah. Spaghetti. All right, but there are some foods that kids don't like. And what are some of those? What broccoli? What turnip greens? Brussels sprouts? Onions? Tomatoes? Liver? I'm hearing things, right? These foods that I'm hearing primarily from you all come from which food group? Vegetables. That's right. That's right. Why don't kids typically like vegetables? Because they're never given to them when they are little. All right. Yeah. And what was that back there? They're good for them. They don't want anything that's good for them. But let's just be, let's be real. No, it's not enough sugar. They don't taste that good, right? To a young person, right? Most, I mean, again, you know, for us, a lot of us in this room, either you had nothing else to eat and so you just learned to like it, uh, or you acquired the taste for it, right? For me, I mean, I would never touch a tomato growing up. Never, but now I like them, okay? Think about this for just a moment. Oftentimes, even though something is good for a child, and even even though there's like long-term benefits, that is not enough to overcome that momentary unpleasantness for them to eat that food. Even if their mom and dad commands it. I've tried it. You will eat that. Watch me throw up, Dad. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, my, my Elijah in particular, I mean, it was just amazing. Because you know, Christy, Christy grew up in a family with nine kids, and you didn't waste anything. I mean, it was anathema if you threw out some food. And we both said, our children will eat whatever we put on their plate, what, you know. And Elijah said, yeah, you can try that. Watch me barf, okay? And he could do it on command, it seemed seemed like. But nevertheless, no matter how good it is for them, they can't seem a lot of times to get over that momentary unpleasantness. And so oftentimes, kids, they neglect vegetables. But so do adults, right? Let's just be honest. Well, tonight we're going to dig into a big plate of Bible vegetables, okay? A big plate of Bible vegetables. What we're going to talk about tonight has amazing health benefits for the church as a whole and as individuals in the church. It also has great health benefits for the witness of the church. And God's commanded it. He's commanded us to do what we're going to talk about tonight. So should we do it if God commanded it? Of course we should. But we have to admit that what we're going to talk about is absolutely 
unpleasant to us, okay? It's like kale mixed with broccoli, mixed with pureed Brussels sprouts, sprinkled with sauerkraut, okay? <laughs> might be how you might think about it into our natural taste buds, okay, when it comes to our spiritual taste buds. But no, no doubt it's good for us, okay? The question is, will we be mature enough to get past the momentary unpleasantness to eat it, to do it, okay? So as we walk through the book of 1 Corinthians, what Paul is addressing in our text and what we're going to talk about tonight is formally called corrective church discipline, okay? Corrective church discipline. This is nothing more, maybe that sounds, man, that sounds overbearing, that sounds, you know, sounds really tough, strong, whatever word you want to use there. It's nothing more than taking Christian accountability seriously. It's love with teeth. Right? It's love with teeth. It's nothing more than biblical Christian love, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 6. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so in chapter 1 and chapter 3, Paul calls the Corinthians and us to be united in identity. There's only one tribe in this church. Chapter 2, Paul calls the Corinthians and us to be unified around the gospel. Chapter 4 calls the Corinthians and us to unify under the apostolic office. But here in chapter 5, Paul calls the Corinthians and us to unity against sin. Unity against sin. So let's look here how it does that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to read the entire chapter tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Word of God says this tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, It's actually been reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you, assembled in the name of the, uh, when, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that a spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning that sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 
for what, I have, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. My goodness, what a chapter. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word. We're so thankful to walk through your word because potentially we would just skip over this passage. We would preach around this passage. Uh, we would find something else to talk about that's easier. But Father, it's in your word, and we're excited as we walk through this to not avoid it, but to preach on it, to teach on it, to explain what you mean here and, and, and what it means for the church and how we do church and how we love one another. Let me stress that again, Father, how we love one another. Father, I pray that tonight that you would maybe just open eyes, maybe to something they never thought about before. Or maybe for those that have thought about it, God, I pray that you would help them to go deeper to think about it. And perhaps, Father, there's been those that, that have sort of experienced this, but they, but, but they experienced it in a bad way. It, just, it didn't happen right. It didn't happen the way that you would have them to, to, go, to have the, that church gone about it, God. I pray that even in this moment there would be some healing that would go on in their heart and in their mind. Father, we love you, and we want to honor you and your word, not just with our lips and not just with our lives outside of the church, but with our lives together in the church. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Okay, so here's tonight's takeaway for you to think about. The, the, uh, it comes to tonight as a proposition for you to think about, a statement. Christians should lovingly stand in unity against unrepentant sin in the church. Let me say that again. Christians should lovingly stand. Now that, that adverb there is important. Lovingly stand in unity against unrepentant sin in the church. And our text here helps us to understand four ways to, to go about that. How do we do that? Four ways. Uh, the first thing is that as I look at the text here, if we're going to do that, if we're, if we're going to lovingly stand in unity against unrepentant sin in the church, the first thing that you and I have to do is that we have to let sin shock us. Let sin shock you. You and I and, and all of Eastwood Baptist Church will never stand lovingly against unrepentant sin and unity if we're not shocked by sin. We'll never stand against it if we're numb to it. It's kind of like, I forget which child it was. I think it was Elijah, maybe, or Nathaniel. Can't remember which one. But I remember Krista got an epidural with, with, one, with, with, with both of those. But, and the, the nurses, uh, the anesthesiologists, for some reason, titrated the, the anesthesia too high. All right? He turned it up. He turned a little switch a little too high. And so it was bloop, 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 bloop. And next thing she knew, I mean, she was numb up to here. You know, you're not, you're not supposed to go that far. You know, and she was a nurse, I, I, you know. And I, I remember the nurse coming over, pulling out some kind of pin prick and started poking around on her torso. She couldn't do a thing. And she was like, so they had to turn it down and all this stuff. But, but that right there, guys, that, that she, she, she could feel nothing, no pain. She was numb in places that she shouldn't have been numb. 
And the same thing is true with sin oftentimes, y'all. We have to be very careful that we don't become numb to sin. That we can simply see it and not be bothered by it. That we can see it and look the other direction. That we can see it and have no reaction. There should be shock. And that was Paul's reaction as you look at it here. (laughs) He couldn't believe what he was hearing. He was stunned. Look at verse 1. He said, it is actually reported. He's like, I think this, I want this to be fake news, but it's not. It's actually reported that there's sexual morality among you and of a kind that, not, uh, that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. I mean, this was sin in the congregation, the sin of sexual morality. Porneia in the Greek, right? This term, it's this umbrella term that covers a multitude of illicit sexual practices from smaller sexual sins to very debauched sexual sins. But Paul comes back here and and he qualifies the nature of porneia here. This sexual morality by saying that it's a kind of porneia that pagans don't even put up with. Now is that saying that it's it's a little thing or a big thing? Pretty big. (laughs) Pretty big deal. Pretty gross illicit immorality. Okay? He said, this is the kind of stuff that people who are of false religions don't put up with. This is the kind of stuff that people who are godless don't put up with. Serious sin is egregious sin. And then he tells us exactly what he's talking about here. He says, there's a man among you who has his father's wife. Now, one of you may look at that and say, oh, oh, he's having relations with his mom. But the language here is his father's wife, which points not to his mom, but to his stepmom. This woman didn't give birth to him. Somewhere along the way, his father married her. Now, some may consider this incestuous. That's fine if, that's what you, if you want to label this as incestuous. Some may not because it wasn't a blood relation, okay? Others may consider this merely a form of adultery, but whatever the label you label it as, it is sexual immorality of the sickening degree. That's what he's saying here. It's of a sickening degree. God had barred this sort of sexual activity long ago amongst the people of God. Long ago in Leviticus, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 6 through 8. And, and we could read all of Leviticus 18, but we're not going to. We just want to look at this particular thing here. Leviticus 18, verse 6 through 8. The Word of God says, None of you, and this is talking to the people of God. This is the moral standard for sexual purity. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I'm the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She's your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It's your father's nakedness. There's much more to the list. Again, we could go much further. That's a list that we should become familiar with, though, to help us, again in our minds, rightly understand the, 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 the boundaries to which God has placed around um, sexuality, all right? Of course, it goes into a lot of things today that we're seeing. Uh, it covers homosexuality. It, it, it covers uh, adultery. It, it, it covers bestiality. Um, but here in this text, I mean, just notice, you, you see the differentiation between your mother and your father's wife. 
Now, some of us may feel empathy for the Corinthians and say, well, they just didn't know better, Ben. They just didn't know better, Paul. But Paul says, by nature, you should know better than to do this. Paul says that pagans don't even tolerate this kind of junk. By universal grace that's given to us through our human conscience, even pagans say, don't do that with your stepmama. Yet here it is, being committed, not out in the world, but by a man in the church, a member of the church, a brother in the church by somebody who had supposedly repented and trusted Christ and had been born again. Paul was scandalized by it. He was shocked by it. Just a few verses earlier, as he was arguing for his apostolic leadership, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.16, he said, I urge you then, be imitators of me. All right? And in this instance, Paul is saying, if you're not shocked, you should be. And if you need an example for how you should be shocked, look no further than the Apostle Paul. Paul saying, look at, look at Paul. Paul saying, look at, look at me. If you want to see how you should respond to this type of situation. Guys, that, that, that just goes to show that Christianity, the truth of God's word, when you model it and live it out, you are teaching it. Right? Obviously, we're to open our mouths and teach directly and explicitly from the word of God. But every day is your opportunity to live the word of God. Right? People are watching you and, and how you live and how you respond says a lot about what you believe, okay, and what is true. And people who may never read this book straight away are reading you for how you are interacting in the world, how you are responding. And you and I should let sin shock us. It should grieve us. Not just this particular sin. Any and all sin. You know, those of you who have been in Christianity long enough, and particularly if you've ever tried to counsel with people or help people in their struggles, it's easy for you to get calloused. Is that a fair word, Brother Gary? <laughs> Just get calloused. Because nothing shocks you anymore. I mean, someone says, hey, preacher, I need to meet with you. And they come in and they, they tell you what's happened. And you say, I'm not surprised. Not because of who they are, but because of what you deal with all the time. It's easy for you and me, not just the preachers and the, the teachers amongst us and the councils among us, but even us in the world. It's easy for us to get callous because it's all around us. To become numb to what's going on around us, all right? I just want to challenge you to check your heart. You should never be desensitized to the ugliness of sin. Now, that's not just sin in somebody else's life. That's sin in your life. That's sin in my life. Right? I mean, I should be most sensitive to my sin. Okay? But we will never lovingly stand in unity against unrepentant sin in the church if we're not shocked by it. Second, if we're going to do that, if we're going to stand lovingly in unity against unrepentant sin in the church, then we have to refuse to tolerate and celebrate sin. Now, I said a moment ago that Paul was shocked by sin that had been reported. And that's true. He was shocked. 
But that's not what really shocked him. What really shocked him, when you look at this text here? That the church did nothing. The Corinthian church tolerated it, and, and maybe even, it depends on how you read the text here, celebrated it in their midst. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 and 2. He says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. Again, he's saying the pagans don't tolerate this stuff. I'm absolutely floored and flabbergasted that you are putting up with this. And not only are you tolerating it, but you're arrogant in tolerating it. Literally, you are puffed up, chest all puffed out, shoulders thrown back, head held high, and proud of what's happening. They were proud that this man was having his way with his daddy's wife, his stepmom. And we're not told exactly what they were proud about. It could have been, man, that they were actually proud of what the man was doing. Now listen, you may say, I don't know about that. Well, I mean, I don't know, it could be. Sometimes the moral compass of man, even those who are in the church get so jacked up and miscalibrated that we go way off, right? I think if, if Shannon was here, he would stand up and testify about his book, The Peace Child. And if you talk to Shannon long, you know, he'd talk to you about The Peace Child. But I, I'm pretty sure it's that, that story, that tribe, of where they were, they were cannibals in Indonesia. And when they heard the gospel narrative of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, when it got to the point where Judas betrayed Jesus, they stood up and applauded. Yeah, that Jesus guy's a loser, but that Judas guy, he's awesome. That's what they said. Documented in history. That's what those people said because their moral compass was so backwards and so wicked that they loved Judas and hated Jesus for the moment. So... Could it be that, that, that they were actually proud of what the guy was doing? Could be. Or were they proud because they, uh, they, they misunderstood the grace of God here? Maybe that's what they were proud about. Maybe they, they thought that, man, you can just sin all you want because God's grace will cover it. I mean, you, brother, with your stepmama, you are really demonstrating the grace of God here. Do whatever you want and do it to the fullest, man. Because God is going to get glory by covering your sinful self. Could have been. That's warped thinking. That's not orthodox biblical thinking. But nevertheless, that could have been what they were thinking about here. Or were they simply being arrogant because they were overlooking sin and celebrating it? Right? Maybe they, they had even redefined sin such that, that what this man was doing was not sinful in their eyes. And we see that happening all around us, don't we? Even in churches, where sin is being redefined, we as human beings love to do that. To just to redefine it where they're the sinners. I mean, not me. <laughs> Particularly, we see this concerning homosexuality today in the church. Uh, denominations have fought over this. You know, particular denomination, denominations have fought over this for years. Whether or not homosexuality is sin or not. But I ask you tonight, 
who gets to define sin? God does. God. God does. Therefore, we don't have the right to redefine what's sinful. And to do so is both foolhardy and eternally dangerous. It's eternally dangerous. Paul says, instead of being puffed up and arrogant about what's going on, they should have mourned. I say to you tonight, sin should break our hearts. It should break our hearts. It should sadden us. It should sicken us. We certainly shouldn't celebrate it. And we shouldn't tolerate it either. Again, there's an air in Christianity today that we just, people come in with their sin or, 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 or move into sin and it's okay. Who are we to judge them? Right. There's that air in Christianity. But we're going to see here in a moment what, what God's word has to say about that. All right? Again, man, the, the, the old, the old uh, gospel hymn, right? Just as I am, come to God just as you are. But God wants to change us. Doesn't he? He certainly does, all right? So we've got to throw that stuff out. Listen, would you tolerate a little poison in your coffee? No. Would you tolerate a few mouse droppings in your rice? (laughs) No way. How about just one white hair in your biscuit? Even if it was your grandmama's, you're throwing it out, right? (laughs) Now, if you're hungry, you're going to eat around it, but (laughs) nevertheless, right? You're going to get rid of it, right? You're going to throw that stuff out. You wouldn't tolerate it. You certainly wouldn't celebrate it. You would get rid of it. So I, I, I just want to just encourage you tonight to refuse, to refuse to tolerate or celebrate sin, okay? Again, that's in my life. I personally should be doing that. You personally should be doing that in your own life. But God has put us together to help one another, Okay? Because sin does what? It deceives. And guys, there are moments in this life where it's like we just get spellbound by sin. We can't tell up from down. We get lost in sin and delusional in sin. And we need our brother's keeper and our sister's keeper to come alongside us to help us to see rightly and to help pull us back. And so that leads us here to the third way The third way, as we think through this tonight, if we're going to stand in loving unity against unrepentant sin in the church, then then we've got a third, take God-prescribed action against unrepentant sin. Now, what God prescribes us here through Paul is going to sound absolutely radical to you. It's going to sound unpleasant, and it actually is unpleasant. At no point should what you're about to read sound exciting to you. And if it does sound exciting to you, then you've got a heart issue, okay? It's going to taste like vegetables taste to a kid. But God has commanded it, and it is healthy for the church and for individuals, okay? So look here again, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 through 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 2 through 5 says, And are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already prom- uh, pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, or our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
So what did God prescribe for the Corinthians and by extension us to do in situations like this? What did he prescribe? To remove, yeah, to put the man or the woman out of the church, to excommunicate, to disfellowship them. And this is an important, this is an important follow-up question. And whose responsibility is it to do that? Is it that some individual in the church? No. Is it the pastors slash elders, or whatever word you want to use there, of the Corinthian church who were to decide this and to pass this decision? No. We do have a congregation here in Bowling Green, you know, that the, the, the pastors and the elders make that decision. There are several of them, I suppose, but one in particular that I'm thinking about. No. Who was it? The entire church. Look at verse 4. He says, when you are assembled, when you're assembled, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Guys, the church is supposed to put the unrepentant sinner out of the church. What? I mean, how does that sound to your ears? How does that fit into contemporary church growth strategies? <laughs> Beloved, did you know that there's more to church than church growth. There's also church health. There's also church health. Here in the teaching, you and I as the church have to decide if the Bible is authoritative and if the Bible is sufficient for how we do church. We have to decide if whether or not God's ways are best. So this comes down to authority and sufficiency of Scripture. There's no other way to categorize this, okay, in our hearts and our minds, okay? We have to decide whether or not God's ways are best. That's why I say it takes a mature Christian. Because I don't know any child, or at least none in my house, who if I said, man, mom and dad's got a big old kale sandwich for you, come and get it, they would snarl their nose all day. But I know some adults who have a mature view, a developed view of eating healthy, who will say, yeah, kale sandwich, yeah. In fact, we went as a staff the other day to a restaurant, and they had, they had kale chips. And uh, I got the french fries. So. <laughs> but everybody said they were good. All, you know, the, those that ate them were good, okay? So what I'm saying is that it takes a mature Christian to value what God is saying here, okay? It takes a mature Christian to value what God's saying. It takes a Christian who says, I believe God's word and I will rely on God's word for how we will do church, okay? Now, Matthew 18 details for us a fuller process because right here in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 5, we kind of get the end of it, man. I mean, the guy has been so unrepentant and went so long. Matthew 18 details a fuller process for us here, all right? Verses 15 through 20 says, if your brother sins against you, Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall not be bound in or shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them in my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So if your brother or sister sins, what is step one? Step one is to do what? Go to them privately. And some of you have had to do that before. Or maybe even some of you have experienced that before. Maybe it went well, maybe it didn't go well, all right? Step two. Step two. Uh, let me go back and say, I've had it both ways before, okay? I've, been, I've went and I've been come to before, okay? None of us are above this, right? None of us are above this. This is the Christian life. This is Christian love. Okay? I've been on the receiving and the giving end on that, Okay? Step two is if, if, if that doesn't win them, if they don't repent, what is step two? Take someone to go with a small group, one or two. Again, this goes back to the Old Testament where you had to have one or two witnesses for something, okay? So it is kind of, Jesus is kind of pointing to some Old Testament principles from the law there, okay? To condemn someone as guilty. If that doesn't work, what's step three? Tell it to the church. Again, not tell it to the pastors and the elders. Right? Tell to the church. And if that doesn't work, what's step four? You consider him a Gentile or her a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, you consider that person lost. You consider them lost. Uh, put them out of the church. And don't miss verse 18 through 20. These verses get misused so often to say, as long as there are two or three, we can have a church. First off, no, you can't. You may have a group of Christians, but you don't have a church. But second off, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about in the midst of corrective church discipline, someone here judging someone to be outside of the faith, outside of the church. That's what he's talking about here. He will be with us in the midst of this. Because again, I just told you a moment ago, this is unpleasant. No one wants to do this. It takes Jesus saying, I will walk with you through this. I'm with you. I'm with you in your midst. We look at this and say, man, I didn't, maybe you say, I didn't know this kind of thing was in the Bible. But it's been there in picture form all throughout the Bible because he points to the picture of the cleansing that God commanded at Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's, it's been there all along in picture form, in a shadow form. The purity, pointing to the purity and the holiness that's supposed to be amongst the people of God. During the time of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the Israelites were to cleanse their homes and their temple of all leaven, all yeast that might be used for baking bread. Look at verse 5 through 6, or 5, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. He says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really, as you really are unleavened. He says, you are already because of Christ, okay? For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. If the leaven was not removed, it would potentially corrupt the whole bread. And guys, that's true with unrepentance in the church as well, right? If it's not corrected, not removed, it could corrupt the whole bread. Someone else 
could say, well, if they're doing it, I can do it. They ain't going to say anything. I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, and Don and I in particular, we talk about people in church. They don't come to church anymore because of that, right? Church never said anything to anybody about what they were doing. Even if they knew it or not, you know, it's, even if they knew it. It's like, well, that's, they're going to do what they're going to do, right? So it hardens people's hearts to the truth, to, to holiness. We read this just a little bit further, 1 Corinthians 5, again, 9 through 13. Next verse, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Then he finishes with this, purge the evil person from among you. In our time left here, we just have a few more minutes before we turn to our time of prayer tonight. Why don't we see this sort of thing practiced in church today? It's tough. It is tough. Absolutely. It's eating vegetables, right? We, and, 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 and we don't like vegetables. Why else, you think? It's very uncomfortable. It is. It often involves more than that person because it's usually other family members there. Yeah. When that happens, they, you know, people are afraid of dealing with all of them. A lot of times it happens, especially with a child, right? Yes. Somebody's kid is doing something, and it's like, well, again, I don't want the parents to do it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Why else would you say? We're depending on numbers of money. That's right. They'll leave. When we say they, put a dollar sign in there. Dollars will leave. Yeah. That, that could certainly be a fear that, that, that ha- that's within the church sometimes. What else would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Who am I? I mean, I'm not walking right either. Or, or you know, again, I don't want to cast the first stone. I don't want to look like I'm better or holier than thou. Image in the world. Yeah, we're afraid what the community's going to think. I mean, you heard about the, the church in, was it Cave City or Park City? They merely began to remove people from their membership roles who had not been to church there in years. <laughs> and it was news on WBKO. I mean, oh my goodness. She was like, what? What? So, you know, I mean, just stuff like that. Uh, another one to think about is that a lot of Christians, guys, and, and this is true, this is very true. A lot of Christians are free agents, like, like in sports, right? They'll just go sign with another team. You don't want me? I'll go sign with another team. And most churches are happy to receive anybody. They don't care. They don't care. They're just going to have somebody. Yeah. It is seen as really not loving. It is seen as that. Yeah. Right. That's right. It seems to me as if Paul is referring to public sins. Uh huh. Yes. But what about the private ones? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a great question, Jackie. So there's a lot of things we could say here. I mean, there's a famine. We're going to get to your question because that's a great question. That's where we're going next. 
there's also a famine in the pulpit, right? We, if, if the people aren't being taught, then we're not going to do this. I mean, of course we're not. We're, we're going to do what's easy. Um, but let's just, let's, let's think about it this way on the other side, though. Before we move to Jackie's question, and we're going to get to it. What happens if we don't do what God said do here? Because sometimes we've got to think about we've got to think about that side too, right? What happens if we don't do what God says here? He could. He could take the blessing. Well, yeah, I mean, read like Revelation one, two, and three. I'll remove your lampstand. Oh, that's a scary thought. Being disobedient. We're not helping. We're not helping that brother or sister, right? We're saying, hope the wolves don't eat you. It does. Yeah, it can certainly spread. You know, it's interesting. I don't have the description verse. Some of you with the Google machine can, can get it quickly. But, I mean, there's a passage of Scripture where it says to rebuke people sometimes publicly so that the fear falls on the whole congregation. Uh, you know, I mean, again, God's ways are not our ways, y'all. I mean, the Bible um, is, 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 is countercultural. It's counter Alberton, Kentucky. Okay? It is. And I mean, it just, so again, it comes down to authority and sufficiency here. All right? So it, it's, it's just important for us to think that through. You know. But let's get to Jackie's question because it's a really, really important question. Okay? And the question, I'll frame it this way, Jackie, is what sort of sin should we do this with? Because the, the fear is, Pandora's box. I mean, I, I'm going to be, I don't want to go. I mean, they're all, you know, they're checking me out. They're checking my, they're going to come look in my refrigerator. I mean, what's going on here, right? No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay, so again, let me give us some three criteria here to think about with this. Okay, three criteria that are very important. All right, Jack, because Jackie said, well, what about private things? All right, so first, it needs to be outward sin, public sin, right? That, that, that is, is out there. And people know it. The community knows it. Okay? Secondly, it needs to be serious. Serious sin. Again, we're not, you know, we're not looking for the little things, right? I mean, again, you know, that, that, that's, that's for like your, that's like for your friends to help you with. And they see a little something there, okay? Uh, we're all growing in God. We're all imperfect. We're all, we're, we're all sinners being saved by grace, okay? All right? So if, 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 if we're looking for the little things, if we're being, uh, if we're straining out the gnats here, um, then none of us, we would all be under discipline at all times, okay? So it, it needs to be serious when it rises to the level of serious sin, all right? When I say serious sin, it rises to the level that if they, in other words, if they continue in this, they will make a shipwreck of the faith. They will prove themselves to be lost, potentially, right? And then the third one, which has kind of been a theme throughout all of this, is that it's unrepentant. We're not going after the person that says, oh my goodness, you're right. I, I, I want to turn from that. I, it's the person that we've walked with. We've been to them once by ourselves and, and wept with them and, and, and tried to plead with them. And, and we went with two or three and we've wept with them and we pled with them and, and begged them, turn from this, please. And finally, we went to the church and we wept before the church and we, we begged the church, help them, please, to turn from this. Right? 
So it's unrepentant. The person is hardened their heart in the sin. In other words, you know what this is? This is a last resort. That's what this is. This is like the nuclear option. But that takes me to my final thing tonight. The fourth thing. If we're going to do this and do it God's way, then we have to love their soul more than their presence. We're going to love their soul more than their presence. Look again back here at verse 5. Guys, here's the motive. You say, well, Ben, you should have started with the motive first. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to hit you with the motive last so it sticks with you. All right? This is what we get in communications called the recency effect, okay? <laughs> so it's the last thing you heard. I want to stick with you. Look at this. Verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Here it is. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Why do we do this? Because we don't want that brother or sister, that man or woman, to bust hell wide open. We love their soul more than their presence. We love their soul more than, than we love our comfort. Love their soul more than their presence. And there are some of you in here today, potentially, who would say, where were you, church, when I was going through this, when my spouse was going through that? Um, we've not done this perfectly, okay? Uh, this is an area we can grow in, where we help one another and love one another through this. Um, so, conclude by just saying this. Again, one of our measures, and we'll get to this in in, in, uh, in, in Three weeks, three Sundays, and Samuel is L. Am I known by love? This is one of the aspects of biblical love. Not worldly love. Biblical love. So here's my conclusion tonight. May we love one another to greater holiness in the church. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is... The most important question you'll ever answer, where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to be your savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live. And he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. 
And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the Savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.